I'm Vernon Reed, Chair of the Board of the Inner Pratt Free Libraries, Board of Directors and Trustees. Uh, first, I'd like to ask, will all the trustees, directors, please stand so I can thank you for doing such a great job? Thank you. Also, I would be pretty remiss if I didn't ask staff to either wave or stand up and so we can thank you for the great evening you brought to us. Welcome to our fourth annual Pratch Presents. The first year, Central was transformed into the New York Times with Frank Rich as our guest speaker. In 2010, we traveled to the lowlands of Charleston, South Carolina to hear Pat Conroy. Last year, we were enchanted by the ambience of the majestic West in honoring Larry McNerty, McMurtry. Tonight, we travel to mysterious London to celebrate with Elizabeth George, one of America's leading crime writers. Looking at the decor tonight, in the main hall and other rooms, we see how libraries can transport you both literally and figuratively. Pratt's Presents is our first annual fundraising event that we do every year. So please give yourselves a hand for making the evening such a success. And one, one important thing I'd like to convey is the monies you provide support the Pratt Child and Teen Literacy Programs. And one unique thing about these programs, we don't receive any funds from the government, be it state, local, or federal government. So your monies are really important in this effort. This event is a tribute to the hard work of a dedicated team of volunteers, the Pratt Presents Planning Committee. May I, ask, may I ask the Pratt Presents Planning Committee members to please stand. I would like to thank you on behalf of the Pratt Boards for the great job you've done. Also, I'd like to recognize tonight's event chairs, our friends, board member Nancy Dorman, and her husband, Stan Mazaroff. They're here somewhere. <laughs> Thank you very much for making this evening a success. Always have a little housekeeping. Uh, now's the time. This is not a hotel or a conference center. So therefore, after we hear from Ms. George, bear with us for five or ten minutes where we can set up for dessert and the rest of the evening's activities. During that intermission, please grab a drink at one of the bars, visit Get Booked, to buy one of Elizabeth George's books. Good thing, Pratt receives 40% of the proceeds for those child and teenage programs. So buy a lot of books. And then we'll be received by Mrs. George in the North Wing, where she will consign your book. Also, make bids on Most Wanted. You'd want to serve time with the likes of PBS's Jim Lehrer, MSNBC's Chris Matthews, our own Carla Hayden, and other luminaries. Also, help us crack the safe to win a night on the town at some of Baltimore's finest restaurants. Also, you can continue to intrigue in the special collections in the annex where you see some of the Pratt's mysterious treasures. Yes, one thing that really impresses me and uh, gets my attention is the Pratt serves nearly two million patrons every year. To give you some perspective, more people attend the Pratt than all regular season home games for the Ravens. The Pratt, the Pratt is a nice destination to see and hear a best-selling author, to use the computers in search of a job, to work on your genealogy, or to enjoy a nice morning with your child at story time. All the Pratt's branches across the city have been and is a resource, resource for Baltimoreans for generations. I talked to a lot of people about what branch they used to go to as a kid, uh, what gets them engaged in the Pratt, and so many of us have spent some of our formative years and presently 
uh, using the Pratt Network. I appreciate that. Everybody here has a special Pratt story. Uh, we're going to have the screen and for a video to show you a few of those stories. Thank you. For more than 40 years, Francis Muldrow has been using and checking out books at the Pennsylvania Avenue branch. As a little girl, the library was transformational. I had severe problems with shyness. It took forever for me to even ask the librarian what I want. The librarian provided help and encouraged her to overcome her fear. To this day, I wish I knew her name. She was so nice that I always came back. I don't care what I had. I had to stumble and stammer in the beginning, and she was patient with me. Every year, nearly 125,000 people visit the Pennsylvania Avenue branch. Like other Pratt locations, generations of Baltimoreans have grown up using it. Pennsylvania Avenue has always been that beacon in this neighborhood. Nestled between busy Pennsylvania and North Avenues and across the street from a subway stop, it is one of the Pratt's most visited branches. Information is power, education is power, and I think a library in such a community, a metropolitan area like this is great. But in recent years, the branch's age has been showing. Patron Helen Williams took action. I wrote a letter to the mayor, thinking I was just one of many, and um, I got a response saying, we will start the renovation at such and such a date. Helen's letter spoke volumes. The branch went through a makeover. Now it has a new mural of historic Pennsylvania Avenue on the inside and a little girl reading on the outside. The branch also has new carpeting, new information and circulation desks, and a fresh coat of paint. The reaction from customers when the doors first opened again, priceless. I love it. I like the color. I like the new arrangement of books and everything. The kids come here. Their parents come here. You come here for everything. This is a hub of the community. Librarians rock. <laughs> Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake dedicated the branch at a special ceremony, spotlighting the Pratt Library's role in neighborhoods and in people's lives. We're fortunate to have the Pratt in our city, and as we continue to grow, as we continue to work together to grow Baltimore by 10,000 families over the next 10 years, we know that it is impossible without a world-class library. The Pennsylvania Avenue branch is just one of 22 Pratt locations citywide all making a difference in the lives of the nearly two million people who visit every year. Patrons like Frances Muldrow, who owes a lot to the Pratt librarian who helped her more than 40 years ago. God bless you because you've changed my life. Thank you. Similar activities happen every day at Central Library in all 21 Pratt branches. Every day, thousands of citizens, physically and electronically, take advantage of the free programs and resources the Pratt Library provides. Many of the happenings and cutting-edge initiatives you see at the Pratt are a bright product of extraordinary leadership and a strong management team. I would like to introduce the face of the Pratt Library, our nationally acclaimed CEO, Chief Librarian Carla Hayden. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And thank you and welcome again to Pratt Presents. I have to tell you, it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces and to meet so many new people. We appreciate you being here. Just think about it, cocktails and things in the Central Library. I'm in the company of Chris Matthews and Jim Lair. And... There are a few perks that you have being a librarian. Of course, working with great people, uh, helping people, but sometimes you get a chance to be joined by your favorite author and one of the people you read a lot, Elizabeth George. Thank you. Of course, this is also an opportunity to thank all of you 
the people who have supported us. You've seen the names behind you, and it wouldn't be possible without you. Your continued support and generosity, have they mean so much to all of us. I also um, am humbled when I meet patrons who come up to us and thank us for helping them find a job or suggesting a great book. And even now in these hard times, being that place that they can go to. I also want to uh, give a special thank you to one person, uh, Mr. Bob Hillman, uh, who was the founder of the Pratt Society, and many of the Pratt Society members are here, and your support is so crucial. So, Bob, could you just stand up for a minute? Thank you, Bob. Now... In this age of e-everything, and you see I'm doing this, because you know what that means, I'm frequently asked, just like every other librarian in this country, in fact the world, about the future of public libraries. And I just want to assure you, libraries are not going away. To remain relevant and current, we are doing what we've always done. We're adapting, we're keeping up with the times, and thanks to an amazing, amazing grant, we're hoping that the Pratt Library will still become and remain the go-to place for patrons to get more for free in the digital age. We're just going to give you a little preview. One touch, one swipe, one scan. This is not your grandmother's library anymore. Welcome to the new Pratt e-library. If you thought libraries were going to be obsolete in the digital age, the Pratt Library is here to prove you wrong. Sony e-readers will be available for patrons to check out at all Pratt locations. Then they can download any of the thousands of e-books available for free. If you already own an e-reader like an iPad, Kindle, or Nook, you can start downloading e-books for free too. All you need is a library card. You can take it home and you can sit on the bus. You can be anywhere you want to and read a book, an e-book, lots of them. So whether you're on the go, at the park, or at home, you can use the Pratt Library without walking into one. Once again, it's the public library that is serving the needs of their community. And in this day and age, the needs are electronic access. Several Pratt branches will also have a high-tech touchscreen monitor. It will allow patrons to browse and even download ebooks. You can scan the QR code with your smartphone or tablet, then it will automatically download the ebook you selected. Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake was the first to try it out at the launch of the e-library. Wow, I have scanned my book. That is pretty cool. Our library system is admired nationwide. More and more people use the Pratt than ever before because the Pratt stays relevant. The Pratt e-library is made possible by a $350,000 grant over two years by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. It's the largest grant to a public library in support of e-books and e-readers. Foundation President Rachel Garbeau-Monroe. Children who would never otherwise have access can come and check this out and use this and learn from it and experience it and be absolutely on par with their you know, peers who are from a different socioeconomic background. The Pratt Library's mission is to provide equal access to all patrons across the city of Baltimore. Free is our middle name. Now we're offering more for free. We will go into the next few decades with e-books and e-readers. The e-library will still be alive and Mr. Pratt's vision will still be alive. We think that Mr. Pratt is looking down and cheering us on. His million-dollar donation to the city more than a century ago has certainly come a long way. We also have to tell you, and I hope you heard that one part in the video, this is the largest grant to a single public library 
in the United States for ebook expansion, and the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation have made it possible. So please give them a hand. Now, we, we're high tech, but we're also high touch. So if some of you have Kindles and Nooks and things that you can download and tweet on and things like that, but you're not quite sure how to download those e free ebooks, thousands of them, we have Pratt Library staff members who will give you free lessons. And so we know that after the holiday season, we might see a few of you coming in. So thank you and thank you. Now, I mentioned that uh, one of my favorite authors is here tonight because I am a fan of mystery books, and I know a lot of you are too. Elizabeth George has dedicated her life and career to literature and learning. She's been writing quite well, I must say, since she was seven years old. As soon as she learned to read and write, she knew she wanted to be a writer. She started out as a teacher in California and touched the lives of countless students for more than a decade as an English teacher. She was even selected as the Orange County Teacher of the Year, a tribute in part to the work she did, she did with remedial students for that decade. But even as a teacher, she continued her passion for writing. And so after 13 and a half years as an educator, she left education when she sold her first novel, A Great Deliverance. And it was something. Now she is the author of 25 books. And I have to say that almost all of them, I think all of them, have been bestsellers. Most of her novels have been filmed for television by the BBC and have been broadcast on, US, on the U.S. with PBS's Mystery. And who doesn't love the Inspector Lin Lindley Mysteries? She's won the Anthony Award, the Agatha Award, France's Grand Prix for literature. She's been nominated for the Edgar and the McCavity Award. She's been awarded Germany's novel, and there aren't many times that I can stand in front and introduce an author and get tongue-tied. But when you meet somebody like Elizabeth George that you personally read and loved for so long, I'm just delighted to bring her up to you, Miss Elizabeth George. Thank you. It is a, uh, it's a great thrill to be here because uh, I, I'd like to begin by saying you're doing two really wonderful things when you come here tonight. You are supporting libraries, which are really crucial, I think, to the development of the entire nation in the development of, of writing, the development of understanding of literature, the development of understanding of other people and all people. But you're also doing something that I think that sometimes people don't think very much about when they come to a library event, and that is that you are buying books. And why that's important is that if people cease buying books, soon there will be no books. So it's also a very important thing to do to support the writer, and I want you to know how much I deeply appreciate it when people show up and buy one of my books. Because you have a lot of things that you can be spending your money on, and, uh, and, and I'm very grateful. And I'm always grateful when people just show up to even uh, hear me speak. I'd like to talk to you a little bit tonight about, um, about writing. I'm taking my watch off because I'm on, a, I'm on a timeline. And I also want to give you a chance to ask some questions if you have any. First, I'd like to talk about why write? Why do writers decide to do this? Why do individuals decide to spend some of their time in isolation with their legal pad or their typewriter or their computer, depending on how they approach the activity of writing a novel? I can say that for myself, it began because I really felt called upon to write. What does that mean? Well, when I was a little kid, seven years old, and my father began taking me to Mountain View Public Library in California, 
I soon discovered in these little books that I bought a great, great world opened up to me, and it was a world that I found myself sinking into and enjoying, and it was the world of literature. Very soon as I began reading these books, I thought, I'd like to do this myself. I'd like to just be able to create my own stories. And I don't think it was really a decision that I wanted to be a writer, but just that the activity of doing what these people did that ended up in these little books that I was reading was something that really appealed to me. So I started writing when I was very, very young. And what happened in my life is that my parents were really wonderfully respectful of that. In that, they never asked to read a single thing that I wrote. This was an enormous gift to me. I don't know if it was because they weren't interested or because they, or because they were wise, but what they did is they made writing available. So the first thing that happened is that my mother gave to me her typewriter. Now, my mom was born in 1914, and her typewriter had gone through the great flood in Ohio, which I think took place around 1929-1930. And it worked just about as well as you could imagine a typewriter that had gone through a great flood would work. So some of the letters didn't work too well, and uh, some, of the, uh, some of the mechanisms of the typewriter didn't work too well. But this was where I began writing my short stories. And as a little kid, I learned to teach myself to, to touch type. Well, not to touch type, but to hunt and peck. And I wrote my first stories, Hunting and Pecking, on this old typewriter, that I still have. I like to think that this typewriter will be part of the Elizabeth George Museum one day, but I, but I think I have it still because my mom kept it, and I found it after my mother's death up in the closet, and now it's in my library at home under plexiglass. So, uh, so I still have the typewriter that I began working on. But my parents really respected the written word. My dad was a great reader, and my mother was a great Italian housewife who never read until she uh, was in her later years and then got back to reading, which she really enjoyed. But my brother and I always, always loved books. And very soon I discovered that when I was writing, I was who I was intended to be. Now, my guess is that there are people sitting here right now who know that they were really always supposed to write. And they have within them this great longing to write. And I had that too. I was a high school teacher, but every time summer came around, I knew that what I was supposed to be doing was really writing. So as summer approached every year, I began to feel more and more anxious as a, as a teacher, knowing that I would have this open period of time in which I could write a novel if I wanted to, or at least start a novel, or write something. And finally, in 1983, when the dawn of the PC occurred, I had reached the point called put-up-or-shut-up time. And I decided one day, what do I really want to say on my deathbed? I could have written a novel, or I wrote a novel. And I decided I wanted to say, I wrote a novel. And what I discovered soon into the process of writing a novel is a great sensation of peace. And this was a piece that took me back to my childhood and took me back to my time in high school. Because when I wrote in, as a child and when I wrote in high school, I was, as I said before, most complete, most who I was intended to be. And that has existed until today. Even today, as I write, I know that that's what I'm supposed to be doing because I feel that what happens is that I sort of sink into the experience of being a writer and feel this great sense of <sighs> release, of knowing I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. 
And it's an odd kind of thing, but I think it's the kind of thing that, that everyone experiences when they are sort of in, li- in alignment with the fates, as it were. Why, then, did I choose to write British novels? Because it's sort of an odd thing. I was born in Ohio. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. For 34 years, I lived quite unwillingly in Southern California, and I now live in the Pacific Northwest, quite willingly. I've never wrote particularly about any place that I lived, because I never felt that any place that I lived was particularly interesting or conducive to story until I actually got to the Pacific Northwest. So... When it came time for me to actually write, I began thinking about, well, what is it that I want to write about? And it was very simple. I knew immediately when I decided in 1983 I'm going to write that I was going to write about England. The reason is kind of varied. First of all, when I was 13 years old, a long time ago, That was at my dawning understanding of what constituted pop culture. Now today, I mean, remember, things are different today. Now five-year-olds know what pop culture is all about. But in those days, those days of having just, you know, three channels on television all in black and white and, you know, virtually nothing else, your access to pop culture was limited. I mean, we don't even, didn't even have FM radio stations in those days. So it was AM radio and these three, three things on television. So my dawning understanding of pop culture began in February 1964, I believe, or was it 63? When, uh, when the Beatles came over to the United States and all of a sudden everything that was related to pop culture was British. All of the music that we listened to was British because fast on the heels of the Beatles came all these other rock and roll groups. And then at the exact same time, film was all British in its orientation because all of these young actors came to the United States too. Actors that are household names now, people like Michael Caine and Vanessa Redgrave and Lynn Redgrave and Sean Connery and all of these people from the British Isles who were unknown before that time. And so that became part of my experience as well. And fashion. I went to Catholic school, so I came to fashion very late, like <laughs> in my 20s. But I was aware of fashion because that's when Mary Quant created the miniskirt. And all of this fashion came over from London. And so if you think about that, my entire experience of pop culture then was informed by Great Britain. At the exact same, that wouldn't have been enough, but at the exact same time, I started studying Shakespeare. Now, unlike a lot of young people, right from the very beginning, I loved Shakespeare. I thought Shakespeare was the bee's knees. I thought Shakespeare was very cool. I can remember my first experience with Shakespeare was in Sister Lorinda's class at Holy Cross High School in Mountain View, California, studying The Merchant of Venice. I thought it was just the coolest possible thing. And what I thought was so neat was the ability to understand Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare is, you know, pretty complicated and convoluted and difficult to understand, but when you make this breakthrough where all of a sudden you understand this Elizabethan English that he's writing in an iambic pentameter and all makes sense, there's this great feeling of triumph. And so that, and then my subsequent reading in British literature, all informed what I was later going to write. So when it came time for me to actually start writing seriously, there was never any doubt in my mind that I was going to write about Great Britain. No question. Why then did I turn to British crime novels? Well, first of all, you have to understand that writing is really frightening. 
Writing is one of the scariest things that you can do. Woody Allen said it best one time. He said, when I begin something, I don't know if I have a paragraph or a book, or a paragraph or a screenplay. And that's really true, that when you begin, you don't really know, what do I have here? Do I have a paragraph or do I have an actual novel? And so I had to do something to demystify the process. And for a long time, I didn't know what that was going to be. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know exactly what it was that I was going to write. But then I taught a class at El Toro High School in California that was called The Mystery Story. Now, to teach something, you have to deconstruct it. I suppose you can just sort of try to fake your way through it, but I was never very good at faking my way through anything. So I decided that once I was assigned this class to teach, I thought, well, I better learn something about mystery stories. And so I got my hands on an essay written by Dorothy L. Sayers called The The History of the Mystery Story. And what Dorothy L. Sayers did was break down the mystery story into its component parts. And when I read this essay, I thought, oh, my God. I think I might be able to do this myself. But I wasn't sure, and after a few years of teaching this course to my students, I realized, you know what, I think I can do this. I think I could write a crime novel. So, here I am poised. So here's my background and all this stuff British that I loved. And I'd been going to England the first time I went to England, 1966. I saw The Who in a nightclub in England. Nobody even knew who The Who were. We, they just carted us off to see The Who. We're going, okay, we'll go see them. Who cares? And here's The Who breaking their instruments on stage. And we think, oh, this is pretty cool. So we did that. You know, we went to Soho. We went to all of these places, ate fish and chips out of a bag and stuff. I mean, it was very, very wonderful. This was before England had even changed its money. So you were dealing with this vast, you know, sacks of coins, trying to figure out what everything meant. And I thought all of this was really wonderful. And I had gone back several times after that. But here I was deciding, okay, I'm going to write now, I'm going to write a crime novel and And I think I'm going to set this crime novel in Great Britain. But I couldn't do it until I knew who my characters were going to be. So I'm not the kind of, I'm not very creative. I wish that I were, but I'm not. I knew that I couldn't begin to write my crime novel until I found somebody who could be my characters who could actually stand in place of my characters. And so for five years, I thought about it. This is a good way to put off writing. You know, do you continue? And writers are very good at putting off writing. So for five years, I thought about I thought about writing. I thought about who my characters were going to be. And then I saw Chariots of Fire. Remember Chariots of Fire? That was, that was the movie about the, um, the Olympic team of 1920, something like that, about the runners. Okay. There's a scene in Chariots of Fire where the young actor Nigel Havers plays this lord, lord somebody or other, and he is uh, very good at the hurdles. And he's practicing the hurdles, and his butler sets up champagne glasses on all the hurdles so that, of course, the young man does not want to spill any of the champagne so he won't knock over any of the hurdles. Well, as soon as I saw that moment in the film, I thought... That's Lindley. That will be my main character. And so I decided my main character will be Nigel Havers with improvements. <laughs> because Nigel Havers is a little short and his nose is too big. But I figured if I could elongate Nigel Havers and fix his nose, he'd be perfect as Lindley. Great. Now I have my first character. But first characters are not enough. And so I needed to have the character who was going to be the wise one, the person who was the forensic expert, because I had decided that my forensic expert was really going to be the main character. It was a great idea to have a forensic expert because I wanted somebody who conveniently knew everything. Great. So I thought forensic science, that's perfect. He's going to be my forensic expert, but what does he look like? So that meant I had to watch many more British movies. And one day I saw the remake of The 39 Steps. 
Now, this is the remake. So many of you probably have not seen it, but the remake had, in, um, among other actors, had a young actor named, by the name of Robert Powell. Robert Powell, as soon as I saw him, no problem. I said, that's it, that's St. James. Robert Powell, okay, now I have my second character. And I was just looking for physical descriptions. Otherwise, everybody would be generic. So I thought, well, I have to find people who look like something. So I have my first two characters. Later on, I discovered Robert Powell was too good-looking, and I had to make him uglier. So I decided that my main character looked like Daniel Day-Lewis on a bad day. (laughs) That was great. So now I have my first two characters. And then I began peopling the world of these two characters, and I named them Thomas Lindley and Simon St. James. Now... I made a decision at that point with these two characters that has sort of haunted me ever since because I decided that I thought it would be very cool if Thomas Lindley had two names. Why? No reason. Just because I thought it was cool. Do you know how George Gordon is comma Lord Byron? Maybe you didn't know that, but English majors know that. George Gordon comma Lord Byron. I wanted Thomas Lindley to be comma somebody. Because in America, we can't do that. The most you get is junior, or maybe the third or fourth, but you don't get comma lord anybody in this country. In, in Great Britain, they get that. I think that is so cool. So I decided he's going to be comma lord somebody. So I came up with comma lord Asherton. And then the question was, well, if you're going to be comma lord Asherton, what does that make you? You can't just say he's a lord. I mean, that's like a giveaway that you don't know what you're talking about. You can't just be a lord. So I thought, I've got to do some research on this to find out to be comma lord somebody. What are you? So I looked in my most, uh, my most notable resource, People Magazine, <laughs> and quickly discovered that Anthony Armstrong Jones was, comma, Lord Snowden. And that meant he was the Earl of Snowden, and that meant that, okay, my guy's got to be an Earl. So now I have a policeman who's, comma, Lord Asherton. That means he's an Earl, so he's the Earl of Asherton. And I figure, well, which number? He's got to have a number. He can't just be the Earl of Asherton. I decided I'll make him the eighth Earl of Asherton, only because that was alliteratively pleasant to me. The eighth Earl of Asherton, there's a flow to it. It has this nice, mellifluous quality. If he was the second Earl of Asherton, it didn't sound nearly as good. Okay, not a problem. So now I have the character. He looks like Nigel Habers. He's taller. He doesn't have as big a nose. He's got a title. He's the eighth Earl of Asherton. Okay, now we're cooking. So now I had to decide, well, if he's an Earl, he has to have an earldom. You can't just be an Earl without an earldom. So I thought, where, where is the earldom? Where is what they call in Great Britain most charmingly the family pile? I love that expression, the family pile. I decided that his family pile would be in Cornwall. Why? You're about to hear the truth. Because I had been watching Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> and Poldark took place in Cornwall. I thought, okay, Cornwall's my place. Put him in Cornwall. I wasn't sure where, but that's not a problem. I knew I was going to go to Cornwall, find out where. In the meantime, bang, he's in Cornwall. Okay. So now I know where he comes from. I know he's the eighth Earl. I have to come up with a name for his house. That's not a problem. Call it Hohenstow. I have no idea where that came from. And now I've got to give him a townhouse in London because an Earl in Cornwall has got to have a townhouse in London. So where's his townhouse going to be? Again, not a problem. Because I watched upstairs, downstairs. (laughs) Now the Bellamy's lived on Eaton Square. But I went to Eaton Square and quickly discovered it was way too, 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 too posh. And nobody would believe in this day and age this guy would live in Eaton Square. But that was not a problem because just a few streets away was Eaton Terrace. And while Eaton Terrace is wildly beyond the means of probably every single person in this room, including myself, it was not beyond the means of Thomas Lindley. 
and so I gave him a house in Eaton Terrace, not too far from Eaton Square. Okay, so I have that taken care of. I'm going down the list, just checking these things off. And now I go, okay, well, he's got to drive a car. He's an earl who drives a car. What's the car going to be? Well, I thought, well, he can't drive a Rolls Royce because a Rolls Royce is just like, it's just too over the top. So how about this car called a Bentley? Now, I had never seen a Bentley. And the one thing I didn't know was that a Bentley is a Rolls Royce with a B on the front. It took me many books to wreck that Bentley, let me tell you. I, after I saw Bentley and I thought, I saw the Bentley in London, I'm, you know, and I thought, oh my God, my character's driving around in this? I gotta get rid of this car, post-haste. But it took me books and books and books for that one moment in a book called With No One Is Witness when I saw, here it is, here is my chance to get rid of the Bentley, and believe me, I took it. So he's in a Bentley, and he's driving around, and he is really, really kind of a, a great guy. And so then I thought, well, where did he go to school? I decided that he went to Oxford, that he had been to Eton, that he had a first in history, that he could quote Shakespeare. I, I like to define him as pretty much like all the guys I used to date. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but it was in my fantasy. And so that's how Lindley came into being. But once I had created this character of Lindley and I had created St. James, who had a much less lofty background, but still was from a rather wealthy family. But I looked at Lindley and I realized, oh, wait a minute. Now, this is a character who's really pretty unbelievable. And worse than being unbelievable, he ran the risk of being pretty unlikable as well. Because, look, he's handsome, he's compassionate, he's intelligent, he can quote Shakespeare. And really, maybe he's going to just kind of make people be, be pretty ticked off at him as a human being. So I decided that what I needed to do was to create a character who did something called prescribing the reader's symptom. Okay, now this is what that means. The reader's symptom is not liking Lindley, but I want the reader to like Lindley. Therefore, I will invite you not to like Lindley, because whatever I invite you to do, you're not going to do. An example would be if somebody says to you, come on, why don't you just be happy? Doesn't that make you want to smack them across the face? So, if I'm saying, come on, hate Lindley, see, you're probably not going to hate him. So in order to get you to like Lindley, I had to invite you to hate Lindley. And in order to invite you to hate Lindley, I had to create a character that hated Lindley. And that became his partner, Barbara Havers. In the creation of Barbara Havers, and for those of you who haven't read my books, Barbara Havers is simply the antithesis of Lindley. He's upper class. She's working class. He is, has this well-rounded Oxford education. She just went as far as comprehensive high school, comprehensive school, and then left school. He is, you know, well turned out, well, you know, well dressed, not over the top dressed. The British upper classes, you know, they do this thing where they give somebody their clothes to wear for a couple of years and then they wear them. I just don't know. That's how they are. Okay, so he, but, but, you know, so he's, he has that wonderful sort of disheveled British upper class thing. All right, so he he's, looks like that. She just looks disheveled all the time. And so basically what I did is I created his polar opposite, and I created a character who, when she is asked, told to, that she's going to be working with Lindley, she is not happy about it. She hates the idea, and she certainly hates him. And so the character that you first meet in the series of the continuing characters is Barbara Havers. And you see that Barbara Havers is being assigned to work with this man, Thomas Lindley, and she is not happy about it. She hates him. She hates the idea. She believes that he has slept his way into his current position of detective inspector, and he's on his way to sleeping his way up to assistant commissioner. And so when you meet him and he comes across the lawn at the St. James's wedding 
because she's called him out of the wedding to go up to Yorkshire with her. And she says, well, you've, you know, you've been assigned to work with me. Well, I don't know why. And he says, well, perhaps you're the best one for the job. And you realize, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's not so bad. It's not his fault that he's tall, good-looking, rich, drives a Bentley, has a pile in Cornwall and a home in Eaton Terrace. Maybe he's an okay guy. And as Lindley wins Havers over in that first book, A Great Deliverance, so he also wins the reader over. And so that is a little bit about the, uh, the, how these novels came about and, uh, and why British instead of American novels. And what I would like to do now is to open it up for questions for about 10 minutes if you would like to ask questions because that's usually kind of fun, and we have some um, microphones. It's on now. Hello, and good evening. Um, Did you help choose any of the characters on the, um, the television show that we see on Maryland Public Television. Did I help choose any of the characters? Yes, like, like the, you mean the actors. Parker, yes. No, 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 not at all. When you um, when you sell to television or to film, essentially you just have to kiss it goodbye, and and you have to just say, you know what, film is film, whether it's television film or or movie film, film is film, books are books, and just hope for the best. So they are, it's completely in their hands who gets to play whatever. They tell you, for example, they gave me the right, what it's called the right of creative consultation. What that means is they tell you what they're going to do just before they do it anyway. So, you know, it doesn't matter. You can scream or yell. You could go, eh, whatever, okay, do it. I hope for the best. So that was all of their decision. I knew who both the actors were because I had seen them before, and I watch a lot of British television. So I knew who he was, and I knew who Sharon Small was. And I was a little concerned, especially about Sharon, because she's really kind of a, a nice-looking woman. But, um, but I had no say in it. I do think that they captured the essence of what the characters are like, sort of mentally and psychologically, even though neither of them looks like the characters. There's a gentleman here. Okay, you've told us how you develop the characters. How many Lindley books have you written? I have just finished my 18th. Okay, but what you didn't tell us at all is how you develop the storyline or the plot. Oh, that's a really good question. The st- how do I develop the storyline? Okay, here's how I do it. Think, picture, it's sort of like a spider web. Um, I can't really begin a book until I know the kernel of the story, which is killer, victim, and motive. Once I know the killer, the victim, and the motive, then I people the world of the crime. Now, generally... I have already been to England, and I have discovered where the story is going to take place. Sometimes I go to England without having the slightest idea what the story is going to be, which is very, very scary. But I've, I've decided the location, and the location will give me the story. It's just like the, it's high-risk writing, and it's kind of you go through the whole thing kind of sick to your stomach, thinking, am I going to get a book out of this? But... Once I have the killer, the victim, and the motive, the next thing I do is I people the world of the crime. What that means is I ask myself questions about it. I'll say, well, here's the victim. Who else is in the victim's world? Who are the other suspects? Does this victim have parents, a spouse, children? And I just created a list generically of who would be in the, in the world of these characters. The, care, the killer as well. Then what I do is I create the characters. First I name them, because naming is extremely important in Great Britain, 
because it because a name indicates all kinds of stuff to the British audience, so you have to be really careful. For example, I always like to use this example, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but the example I always use is Sheila. Okay, Sheila is a name that would never be an upper class name in England, and the reason is just think of it very very easily. The trumpet sounded, the door opened, and Princess Sheila walked into the room. No, there would never be a prin- no offense. There would never be a Princess Sheila. There's not going to be a Princess Linda. See, I mean, the, the British have these very traditional names. So, so when you name a character in Great Britain, that name means something to the British audience. So then I name them. Then what I do is I create all the characters. In the creation of the characters, which is because it's like drawing a psychological, emotional. Um, historical profile of all the characters, their biography, their psychological uh, background, their emotional background, their familial background. That process shows me how they relate to the other characters and what the subplots of the book will be and what the major theme of the book will be. So then when I have that done, that's usually a pretty long document, then I have a better sense of what the the shape of the novel is going to be like. And at that point, then, I create a step outline and then a running plot outline and then the rough draft of the novel. So it's kind of a long, involved process, but, but that's how it's done. We have a question over here. What? Is there somebody? Oh, yeah. Hi. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Why did you kill off Helen? Is that the question? Why did you need to kill off Helen? That's a really good question. For those of you who haven't read my books, you can, you can kill her later since she's just given away a very important detail. No. <laughs> What happens is um, when you write a continuing series, okay, you have two choices. One choice is to freeze the characters in time, place, and circumstance. Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple are good examples of that. When you read the first Hercule Poirot book and when you read the last one, it's the same guy. Nothing has changed in his life except that he dies in the end. You know, he is, he's still that, you know, the guy with the patent leather shoes who likes to drink hot chocolate, who has the egg-shaped head and has a handlebar mustache. Never changes. As a reader, I don't like those kind of books. I like books where things change and develop in the characters' lives. I call this the Nancy Drew, Ned Nickerson syndrome. I stopped reading Nancy Drew when I realized Ned Nickerson was never going to kiss her in my lifetime. (laughs) And that was pretty devastating. You know, I think these books have been written since 1914. This is like almost 100 years of waiting for Ned Nickerson to kiss her. But I didn't decide to wait that long. I thought I'd move on. So I didn't. I I like books that don't have that kind of same thing going on. I like books where the characters change and develop. But what happens then is that you have to keep opening their story up. You can't close their story down. So so the question was, why did I kill Helen? So for those of you who haven't read my books, Helen is a continuing character. She's one of the five main continuing characters, and she is someone who that is married. She ultimately marries Lindley. When she marries Lindley, and then she becomes pregnant, effectively, that that story has been starting to close down. Do you see how that is? Let me tell you why. Because if she has the baby, I am in big artistic trouble. Now, name ten books that have babies as compelling characters. (laughs) Name one. You see the problem. Babies are nice. They're not as nice as puppies, but they are nice. Okay. But they are not compelling literary characters because unless the baby develops a terrible disease or is kidnapped, there's nothing going on with the baby except they can, you know, projectile vomit. Okay, there's a, you know, you get a big dramatic scene where the baby projectile vomits. They can, you know, I mean, what's a baby going to do? All right, so... 
that means that Lindley's story closes down right then. As soon as Helen's pregnant, we go through the angst of like the this, that, the other. Okay, she's still pregnant. She's pregnant for three years in the books. So what am I going to do with her now? She's either going to have the baby or something's going to have to happen. Well, I had known for quite some time that Helen was going to have to be eliminated. I hate to tell you this. And I was just waiting for the appropriate vehicle to do it. And so what happened is when I was writing this book called With No One Is Witness, I realized I had come across my vehicle to eliminate Helen. My original idea was I'll have the serial killer kill her. Perfect. But then I thought, wait a minute. Everybody would do that. As a matter of fact, everybody's going to expect that. If Helen dies, they're going to think the serial killer killed her because this was a serial killer book. So I decided, what if that's not what happens at all? What if she's killed in this arbitrary street killing so typical of what happens in Great Britain, in London today? This was unheard of 40 years ago in London, but today, but you could be coming out of the underground and bang, some kid will just decide to shoot you. And that's what I decided that would happen to Helen. And so in, in eliminating Helen, what I did is I opened up Lindley's story and I opened up a bunch of other stories as well. And that was ultimately the reason why Helen had to go. And people have said to me, you know, well, God, don't you miss her? Well, what I always say is, well, if I'm, when I miss Helen, all I have to do is think about her because that's where she always was, was in my head. But additionally... It was critical, it was absolutely critical that when I eliminated Helen, that the reader engage in the same experience that the characters were engaged in. Consider this, and there are probably people in the room that, that read, this, read this book with no one as a witness. I got a lot of mail afterwards from people just like totally outraged. How dare you? I got a three-page typed letter from an attorney who told me he would never read another one of my books. His wife wouldn't. His mother wouldn't. How dare I? And I oh. But, but, here's the thing. When Helen dies, it's totally unexpected. It is horrible, and she's on life support. And Lindley's decision is, as the doctors say, look, she, she went without oxygen for 20 minutes. Now, we can keep her on life support for two months and then deliver, the, deliver this baby prematurely. But she was without oxygen for 20 minutes, and we don't know what's going to happen. We have no idea what's going to happen to this child. Or you can let her go. You can unplug the machine. And Lindley has to make that decision. And he has to go through the process of letting go of this beloved wife and this child. And so what I wanted to do is to invite the reader in to experience his decision and his grief. And the fact that I got all these outraged letters from people told me that I had done the job. Because if at the end of the book the reader had just tossed it over his shoulder, went to the refrigerator, made a bologna sandwich, and looked for the next book to read, the book would have been a failure. But the fact that the reader was so devastated by the loss of this character told me that the book was a success. And that's what writers want to do. Writers invite you into the lives of the characters to share in some respect what's happening to these people. And if you don't share in some respect what's happening to these people, why read? Because that's the beauty of it, when a writer makes a character so real. Because basically all we have is 26 letters. 26 letters of the alphabet, endlessly arranged in such a way to, as to evoke an emo emotional response from you. That's what we're trying to do as writers. And I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you want me to stay? Yes. Okay. I want her to stay, and thank you so much for taking the veil back a little bit and revealing how Inspector Lindley was created. I'm telling you, I'm never going to read or look at these characters the same again. <laughs> you've taken some of the mystery out, but you've also given us 
a wonderful insight into the writer's mind. So thank, thank you. you. We also you. wanted you to stay because each year with Pratt Presents, we give an award for the most distinguished author of the year, and we wanted to make sure that you knew that we appreciated your contributions, and so we are giving you an award, the 2012 Distinguished Author Award from the Eddie Pratt Free Library, the Board of Trustees and Directors, and this is a 1933, we thought wow. you'd like the history, um, print of this building. Oh, thank you so much. And there are so only much. about 10 of them here. So thank you, thank, thank you. you. You won't, don't forget us. Miss George will be signing books, and we are going to break for just a few minutes and have dessert and really get going. You can crack the safe and the most wanted. You saw those most wanted photos up there. And so thank you so much, and let's have some more fun.